We've been going through the, the letter to the Ephesians that the Apostle Paul wrote. And so this week we are in chapter 5, uh, and we're going to be reading verses 22 through 33 of chapter 5. Um, but before I read it, I'll let you know that this is part 1. And so this is the mystery of marriage part 1, and so we're going to plan on next week uh, looking at part 2. And so if you have questions from this passage that aren't answered this week, and I would, I would guess that most of your questions aren't going to be answered this week, um, but, but if, if you have questions, you'll have to come back next week uh, to hear the answers to those. But, but we're going to look at the mystery of marriage here in these, these verses. And so if you are there, you can follow along. I'm going to read the passage and pray before we begin. So, so Ephesians chapter 5, I'm going to begin, begin reading in verse 22. And so Paul writes verse 22 of Ephesians 5, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let me, let me pray for us as we begin. Lord, this is, this is your word to us, and so we, we want to, to receive it. We want to put ourselves under your word. We want to obey your word. And so, Lord, I pray that this week and next, as we look at these these verses, as we wrestle with its meaning and application, Lord, I pray that, that you would speak to us. And we pray that, that your word would shape us, conform us more and more into the image of Christ. Show us Christ from these verses, that we may behold him and be transformed from one degree to the other into his likeness. And so do that, we pray, through your word, by your spirit. It's in Christ's name. Amen. Well, let, me, let me begin with a, with a quote. Uh, just, just let me clarify, this is a quote, okay? When I start, you may wonder if you're in the wrong place or here for the wrong reason, but, but just, just stay with me. So here, here's a quote. Quote, dearly beloved, we are gathered together here in the sight of God and in the face of this congregation to join together this man and this woman in holy matrimony, which is an honorable estate instituted of God in the time of man's innocency, signifying unto us the mystical union that is betwixt Christ and his church. And I'll stop there, but I could keep going. So, so, th so these words, if you don't know, they're taken from a 19, uh, 1662 Book of Common Prayer. And so in the Book of Common Prayer, which was used by, by the Church of England, the Anglican Church, many denominations still use it, but the 1662 version has a service of matrimony, which is what this, this quote was taken directly out of. And, and it served, you, you're probably familiar, maybe, maybe those words sounded familiar to you. Maybe you were standing nervous as you heard, heard those words for the first time. Uh, but, but that 
that, that book of common prayer, that service of matrimony is, is the, the foundation of almost every Protestant wedding ceremony that, that happens today. Right? We're in a time now where, where young people like to create their own ceremonies and, and services, which I'm not a fan of. Um, but this has been the foundation of the Protestant wedding ceremony uh, since 1662 at least, but, but it goes further back than that. But, but, but the reason I open with that, the reason I open with that excerpt is because there are certain facts about marriage that have always and will always be true. Human marriage is built on several foundations that must, must never be lost. And our passage this morning lays out some of those basic facts, basic facts about marriage that ought to shape how we think about marriage. So, so this passage ought to shape how you understand marriage. And while a handful of these facts could, could be taken from, from the quote I just read, there's one really foundational fact from this, this quote that, that is found in this passage. And so it, it's where, where it says that marriage is an honorable estate instituted of God in the time of man's innocency, and here's the phrase, signifying unto us the mystical union that is between Christ and his church. So, so that, back in 1662, that's what they say marriage is, a, a, an honorable estate signifying unto us the mystical union that is between Christ and his church. And so this basic fact, this mystical union, is the only thing that I want to talk about today. I recognize our passage gives some very specific instructions regarding marriage, regarding the, the roles of husband and wife. So Paul says specific things to, to Christian wives and specific things to Christian husbands. And, and those things are important, which is why I've said we're going to do all of that next week. We can't fit it all in this week. So next week, we're going to look at the specifics, what, what Paul says to husbands and what Paul says to wives and how that works and what that means. Okay, so so I'm, I'm assuming you're going to have a lot of questions that, that aren't going to be answered this week, but come back next week. Part two is what we're, we're going to look at that. But this week... Our simple aim is to understand how Paul describes the relationship or understands the relationship between human marriage and what I'm going to call the ultimate marriage. Okay, so, so what does Paul understand the relationship to be between human marriage and the ultimate marriage? So, so there's two marriages that I want us to talk about this morning because in this pa passage, specifically near, near the end, Paul makes an argument that, that is pretty remarkable. And it's argument... Which it's easy actually for us to miss, unintentionally, I hope, but it's easy to miss in our thinking about marriage today. And so in order to look at Paul's argument, in order to understand his argument, all we're going to look at is verses 31 and 32 of Ephesians 5. Because those two verses are, are where his argument is centered. And so that's all we're going to look at. Ephesians 5, verses 31 and 32. And so because we're just looking at two verses, our outline is really simple this morning. There's two points. Right? So if, if you're good at math, that means one point for each verse, right? Two points for two verses. So the first point we'll look at is, is a parable where Paul lays out the parable or a parable of the perfect marriage, verse 31. And then second, we'll see the perfect. Okay, so those are the two marriages. Uh, what, what Paul does here is he argues one's a parable and one's the perfect, or one's the shadow and one's the substance. One's the, the pointer and one's the reality. Okay, so that's what we're going to look at here in verses 31 and 32. And so let me just tell you here, let me give you the spoiler of what I want to say, what I think Paul is saying beforehand so that you know when we get to the end, you'll know. I'm going to tell you what I'm going to tell you, then I'm going to tell you what I'm going to tell you, then you'll know what I told you, right? So, so at the beginning, I just, I just want to paint the big picture. And the big picture that I think Paul paints here, specifically in these two verses, is that every human marriage is intended to point to 
the ultimate marriage, which is the marriage between Christ and his church. So every human marriage is meant to point to the marriage between Christ and his church. Okay, so husband and wife marriage is meant to point to Christ's church marriage. Okay, so there's the two marriages, and Paul's point is that human marriage is always meant to point to something greater than itself. So that human marriages are parables, parables of the perfect marriage. Got it? So that's the, that's the basic, basic argument. Human marriage is intended to point to the ultimate marriage. So let's see how we got there from verses 31 and 32. So look there at verse 31. Ephesians 5.31, a parable of the perfect marriage. And as we jump into a, the middle of this, 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 this passage, right, the preceding argument that, that this is built on in verses 28 through 30, we're going to look at that next week. Okay, but, but for, for our purposes this morning, we're just jumping into verse 31, which Paul writes, Therefore, or for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, notice there in your Bibles there at, that Ephesians 5, verse 31, there's probably a footnote beside verse 31, or, or maybe there, there's a little letter before it, or, or maybe it's offset, or it has quotations. Some way in your Bible, that should be marked off as different from everything else. Because the reason is, that is not original to Paul. Paul is taking that from somewhere else. And so, and so as the translators of Scripture, as they're, as they're translating and making our English translations, they're saying, wait, this comes from somewhere else, and we want you to know that. So, so the footnote should point you all the way back to Genesis chapter 2. So verse 31 of Ephesians 5 is taken directly from Genesis chapter 2, specifically verse 24. And so you, you hold your spot in Ephesians 5, but, but turn back to Genesis 2, because I, I want us to see this. I want to see the context here. So Genesis, the very first book in the Bible, the book of beginnings, so Genesis chapter 2, I just want us to look at a few verses there. So Genesis chapter 2, this is the, the beginning, the, the very beginning, in the beginning, before there's anything else, is where Genesis picks up in, verse, in chapters 1 and 2, they're the creation account. When there's nothing, God intervenes, God speaks, and then there's everything. Okay, and there's the sequence that's laid out in chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis. And chapter 2 focuses specifically on the creation of humanity. So, so this is our story here in, in chapter 2. So I want you to look specifically at verse 18 of chapter 2. So God has created Adam at this point, the first man. Verse 18, then the Lord God said, It's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And so that's what God says. He says, I see man, but it's not good. The first thing that's not good in all creation, he says, I, he, he's alone, and I'm going to make a helper fit for him. And then God creates all the beasts of the field and birds of the air and parades them before Adam. So the picture is, here's Adam. And it's like he, he, he's looking at all these animals and all these birds passing by, and he's giving them all names. But the most important thing is, as everyone passes, Adam is in his mind saying, not like me, not like me, not like me. Not, and, and every created thing goes before him. And he's like, none of them are like me. None of them are like me. So the Lord, it seems as though he, he, he has this parade of created beings so that... So Adam will say, I, I, I'm alone. I don't have someone else like me here to populate, to, to, to enjoy this creation. And so it says for Adam, there, there it's in verse, verse 19, for Adam there was no helper fit for him. And so he's incomplete, he's lacking. So God causes Adam to, to fall into a deep sleep, and from his rib, God, from Adam, creates Eve. Okay, so, so he puts Adam down. He, from Adam's rib, he, he creates the woman. And then verse 23, 
of chapter 2, of Genesis 2. Then, so, so God takes, takes the rib that he, he, he takes the rib from Adam, makes Eve, and then he brings Eve to Adam. In verse 23, then Adam said, at last, this at last, this is unlike anything that I've seen yet. This shall be called woman because she was taken out of me. She is like me. So, so God creates Adam, parades all the animals before. None of them are, are fit helper. He's alone and it's not good. He creates woman from man and then says, here it is. The picture is complete. And then notice verse 24 because that's what Paul quotes in our Ephesians 5 passage. Verse 24 of Genesis 2. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. That's verse 25. That's what Paul quotes in Ephesians 5. But the unique thing about 24 in its context is that it's not part of the narrative. So you see as you're reading Genesis 2, here's this interaction in, in, in your, this narrative account, and then God's speaking, and then the man's speaking. But verse 24, it's not part of the dialogue. So it's not as though man says to Adam, therefore a man shall leave, or it's not as though God says to Adam, therefore a man. This is the, the author of Genesis, who I, I believe is Moses, who is saying as at the end of this creation account, therefore, just so you know, readers, audience, because this happened, the reason that we have human marriage is because of this. Therefore, because this is, this is how this happened, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And they're going to become one flesh. They're going to be one person, one new being. Two different people come together and there's one new thing, a one flesh. And so verse 24 is clearly a narrative aside where this is explained. And so Moses, think about it, as Moses is writing this, he stops after the man and woman first meet and he says, for this reason, a man's going to leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. In other words, the creation of the first man and woman the way and the order and the manner by which they were created was intentional. That's what, that's what he's saying. It was intentional. God intended to make Adam first and then to make Eve and then to have them join together in a one flesh union. And he did so. He created them in that order, in that way, so that they would be a complementary unit. So that the one and the other would be together one. So two become one, and that's the reason that they were created. Which is why, at least from a biblical perspective, it should not be controversial to say that marriage was instituted by God. It's not a human institution. That's been part of human institutions for, for centuries since man has existed, but it's, it's God who initiated it. And it goes all the way back to the purpose of creation. The very reason that God created man and woman in the beginning was for the purpose of being married. I think that's what he means by verse 24. And so Genesis 2.24 means that in the creation account of Genesis, God created the first man and the first woman for the explicit purpose of being married, for the express, express purpose of the two becoming one. It's not like he was playing matchmaker hoping it would work out. He did it for the very reason that he knew it was worked, would work out because that's why he created it. The intention was not for man to be alone. The intention was for a woman to be joined to a man and a man to be joined to a woman. And these two different, distinct people were created that they might become one. So marriage was and is and always will be God's idea. In marriage, I think it's important to say this, marriage according to God's design involves one man and one woman, woman entering into a one flesh relationship. I mean, that, that's part of the created order. That's part of the nature of how this world was intended to work. 
when a man and a woman come together in holy matrimony, they enter into an honorable estate instituted of God in the time of man's innocency, as the quote said that I read earlier. Marriage was God's creation, uh, God's idea from the beginning of creation. And, and honestly, as, as I thought about this, most Christians, most people understand that. Most, most of you are like, yeah, I, I got that. But it's good to be reminded of that. It's good to be reminded that, that a precedent was set in the creation of Adam and Eve, a precedent that cannot be overturned and should not be overturned, no matter how progressive society or culture gets. God's standard supersedes culture because it was at the beginning. It's the reason that culture exists. It's part of created order. But, but, so, so you can turn, leave, leave Genesis 2, go back to Ephesians 5, and remember where we started. So, so we took a detour. Now we're back on the main road. Right, Ephesians 5.31, Paul quotes Genesis 2.24. And so back in Ephesians 5 where he quotes it, we must note that Paul doesn't quote Genesis 2.24 just so he can make a sim- that simple point about marriage. That's not why he quotes it. Establishing the creation of Adam and Eve in the first marriage is not the main point that Paul makes. That's not why he quotes it. The reason that Paul quotes Genesis 2.24 is so that he can say what he says in 5.32, which is what he says in 5.32, that Adam and Eve, their marriage of Genesis 2 is a parable or a pointer or a shadow or a reference that finds its meaning in the greater marriage, which is what Paul introduces there in verse 32. So, so let's look at verse 32, the perfect marriage. Right, so Paul continues, so he quotes Genesis 2.24, then he says, this mystery is profound or This is a great mystery, and I am saying that it refers to Christ in the church. And so notice what Paul says there in verse 32. The mystery is profound. And so we ask ourselves, well, what mystery? What's he talking about? What did he just quote? He just quoted Genesis 2.24. And so the mystery that Paul must be referring to is the one flesh union between a husband and a wife, the union that that he just quoted in Genesis 2.24. So that, that's a mysterious union. He's saying that the mystery is great. The union between one man and one woman that happens in marriage, that is a profound mystery. That's what he says because he just quoted 224. And he continues, and I am saying, so, so, so mystery, mysterious union, got that? I am saying, Paul says, that this refers to Christ in the church, which is profound. Paul says the mysterious union of a husband and wife in marriage is a pointer or a parable that, 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 that's, that's meant to reference something else, something greater, something far more perfect. Now, in our context, we didn't see this because it's part of, the, part of what comes before, but, but just look up at verse 30 of chapter 5, and Paul writes, because we are members of his body. And so Paul says that we are members of Christ's body, which means that, that Paul's showing this union between Christ and the church. Right? We're members of his body. Oh yeah, union, members of body. I, I know what a good way for you to think about that. Adam and Eve. That union is meant to point to the union of Christ and his church. We are members of his body. And it's in light of that reality, the reality of the union between Christ and the members of his body, that Paul goes all the way back to Genesis 2 in order to say that human marriage was always meant to point to the greater marriage, the perfect marriage, the marriage between Christ and his church. 
And so the union between man and wife in marriage was always meant to point people to the union between Christ and his church. Which means that when God created the first man and the first woman in the Garden of Eden for the purpose of marriage, he did so in order to fill, to, to create this pattern so that the world would be filled with these little pictures or these little parables, little examples of the ultimate marriage between Christ and his church. And Paul quotes it and says, actually, the one flesh relationship of marriage, the purpose for man and woman being created for marriage, is actually a profound mystery, which means it goes far beyond what the Genesis account teaches. The mystery of marriage, according to Paul in Ephesians 5.32, is that it refers to Christ and the church. And so in other words, the very purpose of marriage, the reason that God created Adam and Eve, was to paint a picture of the relationship between Christ and his church. Which means, and I think I have this quote, every human marriage is intended by God to be a parable of the relationship between Christ and the church. Now, I know I'm being repetitive, but this is the one point that I want to drive home because when we see this, when we come back next week and look at how this works, this is the governing principle. This is, we have to get the foundation because when we look for practical applications, if we get this wrong, every application is going to be wrong. Now, now maybe you're, you're not like me, and maybe the relationship between these two marriages doesn't confuse you at all. But just in case you are like me, let me explain why I think this is, can be so confusing. I found it confusing because one marriage, at least in time, came before the other. One was first. So remember, we have human marriage, they have Christ church marriage. And in time, in my linear mind, Adam and Eve were created long before Christ came and died for his church. One came before the other, it seems. Right? Genesis comes before the Gospels. Jesus dies, but Adam and Eve were long before Jesus. They, they weren't on the earth physically at the same time. One preceded the other, which is why my natural inc inclination when I hear, okay, these two marriages have a relationship, my natural inclination is to understand human marriage as the foundation and the relationship between Christ and his church as the metaphor. This is just a picture of this because this was first. That's the natural inclination. It seems natural to think of the gospel, this second marriage, in terms of God creates Adam and Eve for the purpose of marriage, and then when it comes time for, for Jesus to come to earth and, and live a perfect life and die on the cross, it's like God would think, oh, there's already a great pattern in place, therefore let this relationship between Christ and the church follow the pattern that's already been set by human marriage. You see how that's, that's natural to, to understand? Linearly, one came before the other. It seems normal. It's the normal way patterns work. Whatever comes first seems to set the pattern. But... Now notice, don't miss this, what Paul says is exactly the opposite. He, he, he says the exact opposite. Paul says in verse 32, the profound mystery of human marriage, this refers to this, which means this was before this. That's what he says. Which means that in the creation count of Genesis 2, when God is creating the first man and woman, the creation of Adam and Eve is following a pattern that's already been set. The blueprint is already there in the beginning. Is, is that pretty profound? The relationship between Christ and the church preceded the creation of Adam and Eve. I mean, that, that's wild. Human marriage was meant to point to a marriage that was already in God's mind before the creation. The pattern-setting relationship is Christ and the church, and the pattern-following relationship is man and woman. And so God says, I'm going to create a world that points every human being to the relationship between Christ and his church, the gospel. 
And so the world is filled with little gospel parables. So everywhere you look, you see gospel relationships. God meant for that to point others to Jesus and the church. Which is why we can say every human marriage is intended to be a parable of the relationship between Christ and the church. Now, having established that basic point, there's still a lot left to be said. And and there's still, I'm sure, a lot of questions still to be asked. But for now, this is where we're going to stop. Hold your questions, write down your questions, and, and we'll, we'll hopefully work them out next week. But, but I want to finish, I want to close out our time this morning looking at a handful of applications from just this basic point we've just made. So I think there's maybe four, maybe three application points just from this basic point. Here, here's some points of application. First point of application, there's only one perfect marriage, and it's not yours. I mean, that, that should be freeing for you if you're married. There's only one perfect marriage, and it is not yours. If your aim or your expectation is perfection, you will always be disappointed. There's only one perfect marriage, and it's not yours. Which, maybe, maybe, maybe some of you need to hear this this morning. Your marriage isn't doomed because of your current difficulty. It's not doomed because, because you had a hard week, or you're in a hard season, you're... Your marriage isn't doomed, or maybe you need to hear this. You didn't marry the wrong person because it's hard. You didn't marry the wrong person because you're struggling maritally, right? There's one perfect marriage, and it's not yours. This should shape your perspective. So if you're here and you're not married, I want to ask you to raise your hand. If you're not married and you want to be, you should know there is one perfect marriage, and it's not going to be yours. I promise you that. It's not going to be. Ask the person sitting next to you if they're married. Right? We all enter into marriage thinking, I'm, I'm not going to have problems like my parents did. I'm not going to have problems like my neighbors. Every marriage has problems. And so you should go into marriage with that expectation. It's, it's probably going to be harder than you think. There are lots of joys. Hear me say that. I love being married. But your expectations should be shaped by this reality. There, there is only one perfect marriage and it is not between two human people. I mean, just think about this. In, in our fallen world, the union of two imperfect people can never ever result in a perfect marriage or even a problem-free marriage or even a stress-free marriage or even a financially burdened marriage. I mean, for sake of illustration, if I had one cup of dirty water and another cup of dirty water and I had an empty pitcher here and I took two cups of dirty water, poured them into a pitcher, is that going to be a clean water pitcher? Right? That's that's ridiculous to think, right? If you think your marriage is going to be perfect, then, then, then you don't understand yourself. You're a dirty cup of water and so is the person that you're googly-eyed over. <laughs> human marriage was never intended to become the place of perfect peace for humans. It is a place of peace. It is a place of, of comfort and security and joy and all kinds of good. But it was never meant to become the place of perfect peace or marriage. It was always intended to point to a greater marriage. The so second point of application Every human marriage proclaims a gospel. Every human marriage proclaims a gospel. Now, we'll say more about this next week, but, but you should notice that your marriage, if you're here this morning you're married, and you're married, your marriage proclaims a gospel. Your marriage paints a picture. And for the Christian, your marriage portrays either the one true gospel or it portrays a false gospel. It's one or the other. Your marriage... Is, is painting a picture for the watching world, for your kids, for your coworkers, for your neighbors. And it's either the one true gospel or the false gospel. And how you understand your role in that marriage is going to determine how the, the picture that you paint. 
And we'll see more about this next week, but, but I just want to address, make this point. If Christ in the church is the pattern, then husbands, talking to you husbands as a fellow husband, if we refuse to love our wives as Christ loved the church, if that's our pattern, when we fail to follow his example, we, we paint a picture of a false gospel. So, husband, when we say, she's such a nag, or she's so consumed with everyone else except for me, or she's so needy, she complains too much. When we say that and respond according to our disappointment and say, I'm withholding, I'm going I'm to make her know how I feel. When we respond that way, Christian husband, you are misrepresenting Christ in the gospel. I shouldn't have to remind you, but in the gospel, Christ doesn't say, look at them. All they do is nag, nag, nag. Whenever there's a problem, they come talk to me, but, but that's all I hear is about their problems. Christ doesn't say, look at all those idolatrous people. All they care about is themselves. They, they think about me maybe an hour a week. I get no other time during the rest of the week. Look at those self-consumed people. Oh, they're so needy. All these requests, all they do is ask, ask, ask. That's not Christ in the gospel. The gospel says that Christ as the husband, he looked upon a spouse who was unlovable, nagging, idolatrous, helpless, and yet he died for her. Christian husband, you, you, you got a task before you. That's your gospel pattern. And when you, husband, fail to live up to that, you're painting a false gospel. Which, let me just say, I fail to paint that gospel picture accurately on a daily basis, just so you hear me. Right? There's grace for husbands who fail to paint that perfect picture because Christ died for us. But we're to paint, we're to aim to be that spouse that Christ has patterned in the gospel. Husbands, love your wife as intend, is intended and supposed to mirror Christ's love for the church. And it does that well or it does that poorly. The same could be said for wives, but, but wives, you're off the hook for now. We're going to say more about that next week. Last point of application. This is where we're going to end. Last point of application is simply to say that Jesus loves his church. I mean, there's a takeaway from this. Jesus loves his church. Christ loves us, he sacrificed himself for us, he saves us, he sanctifies us, he makes us his own and will present us to himself to be his own at the end of time. So Christ loves his church. Now there's a corporate dimension to this truth. Christ loves his church collectively as a whole, as a, as a group, as a body. Jesus gave himself for his church. Jesus has committed himself to the good of the church. So so. Scripture promises that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And so that's one institution that will never, ever, ever be shut down right? until Jesus comes again. And so, and so he, he, he loves the church corporately, but there's also a really personal dimension to this truth. Because the church corporately is composed of individuals, isn't it? And so you can't separate the love for the church as a whole without recognizing the love for the individual members of it. And so if you're a believer in Jesus, if you're a Christian, someone who trusts and treasures Christ above all else, if that's you, hear me tell you this morning that Jesus loves you. He loves you. You, who you are. You didn't earn it. You didn't deserve it. You didn't inherit it. You did nothing to contribute to, to the benevolent heart of Christ towards you. Yet here you stand in the love of Jesus. He loves you. 
He loves you in the, in the words of a great hymn. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured, boundless, free, rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me. Underneath me, all around me, is the current of thy love leading onward, leading homeward to thy glorious rest above. You, Christian, will be enveloped by the deep, deep love of Jesus until he brings you home. He loves you. He loves you. As a result of your faith in Jesus, Christian, and what he accomplished for you on the cross, the gospel proclaims that you belong to Christ and are part of his body. You're united to him in a union and to an extent that no human marriage could ever accurately represent. You're united to him. You're a member of his body. There's intimacy there. Jesus loves you. And then the last, last implication of this, Jesus loves his church, but as true as it is that he loves his church, as encouraging as it is for all those who are trusting in him, we also must recognize that not everyone is part of the body of Christ. So some of you sitting here today, you're not part of this relationship. You're not part of the church. As deep as the love of Christ is for those who are his, part of his body united to him, that deep love, that assuring love, that redeeming love is not experienced by all without distinction. You need to hear that. There are some here this morning who are outside of Christ. You're not united to him. You're separated from him. And this love that we're talking about, you're not receiving that right now. You're not in that relationship. I mean, I love my wife like I love no other woman on this planet. I hope I'm also a loving person. I hope that, that, that in my life I'm loving to others, my neighbors, soccer parents. I hope I'm loving, but, but my general love for others is no match for my covenantal love to my wife. And so you can say, yeah, Jesus loves everyone. Okay, generally I'm okay with that. But he doesn't love everyone like we're talking about here. There's a covenantal committed union that Jesus has with those who are part of his body. And so some of you here, you're not part of Christ's body. You're strangers to the intimate love that Christ promises to his own. And you're lacking. You're lacking. You're not accepted like you're, you're intended to be. But the good news here is that, is that you've been proposed to. You have a proposal waiting. The offer has been extended. In the gospel, Jesus lays down his life for those who put their faith in him. He dies on the cross and rises again to offer eternal life to anyone, anyone who will trust him, anyone who will trust in what he accomplished on the cross. And so my call to you this morning, if you're here and you don't know Jesus, if, if you're not united to him by faith, my call to you is repent and believe the gospel because there's joy and pleasure and happiness found in relationship with Jesus that, that cannot compare to anything you'll ever experience on this earth. And so I would call you, put your faith in Jesus because that relationship, that love, that joy will, will, will last forever. There's a day coming when we won't need human marriages. Do you remember when Jesus says that in the, in, in the gospels? Well, he was trying to be trapped. Some of, some of his uh, questioners saying, well, well, okay, here's a man, and, and he marries and divorces and marries and divorces and marries, and, and in the resurrection in heaven, who's going to be his wife? Who, which one does he get? And Jesus says, there's not going to be marriage in heaven. He's not saying that to, to make you sad and think, oh, I'm really sad. And he's saying that because every human marriage points to a greater marriage, and when that greater marriage is there, you don't need pointers. 
Human marriage is not going to last, but it will be superseded by the ultimate marriage where Christ and his bride will be feasting at the wedding supper of the Lamb. And that's our hope, Christian. That's what we long for. Let's pray as we close.